You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. So tonight we're in Hebrews 9. Uh, we're under the general heading in the entire book of all things being greater and better in Christ. And in this section, the a Hebrew writer will directly uh, make those kind of comparisons for us, as we were in chapter 9, uh, looking at the uh, service uh, of God uh, for the people uh, and the sacrifices that were made under the old system in the old uh, covenant. And so now uh, we're moving to the second part of those uh, uh, those things in chapter 9. Uh, we saw that we've got this uh, greater priesthood of Christ, where he works as a uh, one greater than those who were priests under the ways of Aaron, and that the new covenant was promised, and now he's the guarantor and the bringer of a new covenant, and we'll find the better promises in regarding forgiveness in those tonight. So in the second half of John 9, uh, excuse me, John 9, Hebrews 9, and then in uh, uh, the beginning of chapter 10 will be a direct comparison of the sacrifices, the points that will go there in chapter 10, they're being uh, laid out in uh, in preparation for the direct statements of chapter 10 in tonight's lesson. So in chapter 9, tonight we'll begin in verse 15, and we'll see that uh, it's about Christ entering heaven itself by offering himself. And so that is the place of Christ's work as a priest, in the great tabernacle of heaven, where he has uh, accomplished his work and able to sit at the throne of the Father, as compared to the priests of the law, who were never done, who were always offering more sacrifices, who never could stand and rest, because there's always more work to be done, and they really didn't belong that much in the holy place, enough to sit and rest, enough to sit uh, and and uh, uh, be congratulated or take their ease, uh, they did their uh, things of service, and then they got out until they were called upon to do it again and do it again and do it again. So we, we started chapter one with uh, the uh, description of the services under the old law in the tabernacle. Uh, so that it said in chapter nine, verse one, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship, and it had an earthly sanctuary, there was a temple prepared. And then we read about the furnishings and the service that was there, and the author letting us know those did not fully deal with sin. Uh, they were, in verse 9, only a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper pure in conscience. And so there's the fault of the old system uh, in that uh, in that regard, not making the people free of sin. We also found that God in chapter 8 uh, found fault with the people because uh, the law was external to them, being written in stone and not written upon their hearts, but in the new law he'll write it in their hearts and their minds. So in verse 15, where we begin tonight, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, and as you can already see on the screen, we'll take it in four parts. Uh, what we'll find in our four parts is that there was a death, of Christ for full redemption. There was 
uh, blood before, but we'll see it was lesser uh, blood, the blood of, of animals. Now Christ serves in a greater place. Uh, he serves in a greater place um, and uh, by worshiping there, offering there uh, greater blood. And then uh, finally, uh, what we'll see is there is one, one and only one sacrificial death, one and only one in the sense that only Christ, but also one and only one in the sense of a one-time offering. So uh, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and then as we say again, we have four parts under which we'll consider this reading. Now the reading, Hebrews 9, 15 beginning. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who makes it lives. Therefore, even though the first covenant even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet and the wool and the hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary uh, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself, uh, uh, was it he would offer uh, himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And insomuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment, so Christ also, having been, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly Wait him. So here we have this better sacrifice in a better place offered all through the gracious work of Christ that he offers himself. So he's the mediator, as we began in verse 15 in our first section, the mediator of a new covenant. So that which God had promised through Jeremiah directly, saying an old would come and the new is becoming obsolete. What God had directly said there, a new one's coming and intimated in many other places, that has now been accomplished in Christ. He's our mediator, the bringer of the new covenant. 
is it says, since a death takes place for redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And so uh, here the author steps back to talk about not what we like to think about, which is the sins of those under the time and reign and rule of Christ, the things since the cross. But the author goes back and talks about even those things before the cross, that even before the cross, no one was saved aside from the sacrifice of Christ. A death took place for redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so the first covenant in all the sacrifices, and we'll study quite a bit about that in this and next week's lesson, all those sacrifices did not take away sin. It's as though God said, here's some sacrifices, and they're going to teach you important lessons. These are real things. They're meaningful things. And it's sort of there enough for now. The, the, the scapegoat taking the sin away, the uh, bull on the Day of Atonement uh, offered for the sins of the people, those were real things. Those were atonements. Those were things of forgiveness and sacrifice, but not of full forgiveness. But it was enough for then. It was enough for now. And it was a lesson going forward. And so God was able, uh, as he uh, mentions about Abraham, both Paul and James bring it up, Abraham, that he uh, believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, that uh, Abraham was counted as righteous. He was a forgiven man. Uh, there was no sin on his account because his account had been wiped clean uh, by lo the Lord through grace. But it wasn't until Christ paid the penalty that Christ suffered, that Christ offered the sacrifice, that that was taken care of in entirety. And so it was given uh, a forgiveness for these old-time uh, folks under the first covenant. It was given as a forgiveness and promise. It was a, it was a debt that was stacking up. It was a reminder of sin year by year, but it was a debt that was surely going to be paid. And so God acted as though it were paid in many occasions because he knew for a certainty that the debt would be paid. Again, every metaphor and every example uh, uh, parallels is limited in some aspect and in some way, but it's like a person who goes to the store and buys a bit on credit. When he buys on credit, he gets it. He gets the use of it. He acts like it's his. Someone says, hey, is that your thing? Is that your purchase? These are mine, even if he hasn't paid for it yet. But one day the bill will be paid, right? And uh, if the bill's not paid, well, then somebody's going to go collect. Well, in this case, the bill was willingly paid. In this case, the bill uh, was taken care of by the Lord on the credit that had been previously offered by God. Again, that might not be a perfect uh, illustration of this principle, but uh, certainly this truth, as we best understand it uh, and how we can best illustrate it, may be up to us, but this truth, the redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant were done through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, we usually think about Christ has paid the price, and if we do any sin, it's taken care of. And it's been pointed out, actually, I think my father's the first one ever pointed out that I remember this, 
He said, you know, it's really a, a little uh, strange. We've been so used to it for two millennia, we think not of it. But it's a little strange that in this case, the bill is paid fully in advance. So for these people, the bill was paid after their sin of the old covenant. But for us as Christians living in the Christian age, the price and penalty for our sin, that was paid in advance. And you think about, again, to use a a metaphor from commerce or transactional type things. Think about a a credit uh, or a a uh, um, a reservoir or a bank so big that the future generations uh, would find it impossible to exhaust. That the, no matter what the sin, uh, the the price has been paid. The price for all the sin of all of us from now until the end has been paid. This is the mag, uh, magnitude of Christ's uh, sacrifice. And so this was done in justice. This was done in, in fairness and kindness by God that sin was fully paid for by this one great offering of the Son of God himself. In Romans 3, we have the famous passage, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, we often quote that uh, as if that's, well, it is the whole verse, but it's not even the whole sentence. That sentence continues in Romans 3.24 with the thought of which we've just been expressing. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. We're justified by his grace in the redemption that's in Christ, when God and whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So our part is, uh, in, in that long sentence, our part is the sinning, and our part is the faith. God's part is the justifying and the grace and the displaying of Jesus as a propitiation. And the part of Jesus is the dying. The part of Jesus is the offering. And so there we have the gracious work of God. So as it continues now in verse 16, it says, for where a covenant is, and some translations there will say testament, as in last will and testament. And the word here behind this word covenant, uh, diatheke, if I said that right, uh, has the meanings uh, that, uh, of the English word covenant or testament or will, all of those. And so in this case, we're using uh, the, uh, the, the form of a will, the last will and testament, as the covenant here of which we speak, verse 16, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And so we might make all kinds of wills while we're alive. We might make a will a day. Now that'll rack up the legal fees, uh, and that might lead to some great confusion uh, in, uh, in probate court if we have that many wills. But we can make whatever will we want, and we can make whatever change we want. But the covenant, the will, uh, comes into effect when a person dies. So verse 17, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who makes it lives. So now we're talking about the this new covenant 
as a will of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ in his death uh, caused his will, his uh, testament, his covenant to be put into force. And the Apostle Paul would use this same illustration in, uh, in, in method of teaching this in Galatians 3. He said, brethren, I speak in term of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds any conditions. And so the Apostle Paul said, we go with what Christ said because Christ put this will into effect with his death. And so Christ brought us this will, he brought us this redemption, and he died for it. Now, why did he die? Why was the death necessary? Well, because without the shedding of blood, the Hebrew writer will clearly state, there is no forgiveness of sins. And now he talks about the the blood of the old covenant, the lesser blood. And I had thought about going back and reading some of Exodus 24, but the author here summarizes that text better than I can. But if you'd like to read about this particular event, it's in Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8. As this writer here of Hebrews says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now, no, God did not die to bring in the first covenant, but there was a lot of death that brought it in, and there was a lot of sacrifices. Verse 19, For when every commandment that had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law was done, he took the blood of calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people. Old Testament worship, uh, those priests, they, they went home a lot of days with blood on their robes, right? And this day especially, where they're sprinkling, they're dipping these uh, hyssop branches of which wool has been wrapped around to absorb the blood from the great pots. They put the blood in, and then they slung those branches and uh, um, caused the, the wool, uh, which had been soaked in the blood, to release the blood and just splatter that all over. Can't imagine, you know, usually uh, uh, you got some big event like this, a first time thing. You got all the people who want to be in the front row. Uh, maybe after this got going, they didn't want to be in the front row anymore. I wonder if people are trying to move to the back or do they recognize the importance of this and did they all crowd forward to get under the blood? I don't know, but just imagine, just like today, in some churches, the guys swing around on the end of a chain uh, the big uh, smoking pot of incense uh, so that you get uh, all the smells distributed and the incense uh, brushed around. Imagine if that was blood that they were sprinkling all around the place. I, I, I just wonder what the folks in their Sunday finery would do then. But in any case, this blood was sprinkled on the book of God, and it was sprinkled on the people. And then it quotes uh, Exodus 24, 8. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And so Jesus, what does he say at the Last Supper? This is the blood of the covenant. What did Moses say when they sprinkled the blood from the sacrifices on the people in the book? This is the blood of the covenant. And so uh, these are bloody covenants, bloody covenants, because they deal with blood guilt. They deal with the guilt of men for which death is deserved. If the, the basic law from the beginning has been, if you sin, you die, right? Uh, the day you eat, you will surely die. Uh, when Moses gave him the law, he said, do this and live. 
He said, but if you don't do this, you're going to die. I've set before you today a life and prosperity and also death and adversity. Choose life. But we know so often people choose the way of death. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins shall die. The soul of the father, the soul of the son. The soul that sins shall die. Well, that's why we have sacrifice and forgiveness through blood. There is blood given where there's a blood guilt has been uh, has been taken on by sin. And so, verse 21 continues, in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. So all those precious objects we talked about last week, the golden candle stand, the, the mercy seat, the golden altar, the, the wonderful table of showbread, there was a time where somebody came and put blood on those. All of those glorious objects had blood sprinkled on them uh, to uh, set them apart, to make them holy and sanctified and ready for God's service by uh, you know, this wilderness generation who had come out of Egypt on that final night with blood on their doorpost. Uh, they certainly learned that there's a price of sin and the price is blood. So verse 22, according to the law, one most may almost say all things were cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The reason for this partly at least is Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood by reason of the life. So the, the blood, it's not that the blood itself has magical powers or blood taken from a body uh, uh, is like uh, you know, some magic potion to be put on a thing, but the blood represents the life, which is why we can talk just about equally and often do just about equally talk about Christ. We can talk about his blood or his death. Because when we talk about one, we're talking about the other. The blood is the symbol that the life has been lost, that the life has been given. The life was in the blood when it was in the body. Once it came out of the body, there's, there's no more life in that body. Of course, there's also no more life in that blood. But it's the symbol, the show, the sign, the proof that the life is gone. And so it was when Christ died for us. His blood was shed. His life was taken. Those are exactly equivalent statements. There is no difference in meaning or importance in any way between those two things, that his blood was shed or his life was taken. And so with Christ, his life was taken. When they put the spear in his side and the water and the blood flowed out, it was an obvious token that the man, God in the flesh, God with us, was dead at the hands of sinful men, but given as a sacrifice in our stead. And so in the law was this blood for, uh, uh, which was life for uh, forgiveness. And so it is in the New Testament as well. So we had the lesser blood before. Now in verse 23, we've got the greater blood and we've got the greater place. Now, again, talk about the temple and the tabernacle of God, the most holy place that has ever been on the earth where only God's anointed high priest could go once a year. And in this point of comparison, it's the lesser place. It's the lesser place. And also all those bloods of, of all those uh, perfect specimens 
of, of valuable animals. That's the lesser blood. All right, so verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. So there's a better sacrifice than even the blood of those perfect specimens slain by Aaron and his own sons. There's a better place and there's a better sacrifice. And so Christ is the better sacrifice and heaven is the better place. This is the work uh, that Christ did for us. For Christ did not enter the holy place with hands, a mere copy. As great as that place was, all those golden fixtures and golden furnishings, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. And so he went into heaven itself to appear on our behalf before God. And so, again, it's a very different kind of ministry. One sacrifice, not a sacrifice of blood, not his own, but of his own. And as the high priest could never bring anybody with him, you know, there was never a take your daughter to work day if you were the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Just never happened. You didn't take your daughter. You didn't take your sons. You didn't take your family. You went in there, did the business of God, and got back out. And, well, actually, you went in there twice, once for your own sins and once for the sins of the people. But you didn't invite anybody in with you. Here is Christ who's gone to heaven, and he is ultimately inviting us to go to his holy place, that he's made such a way that there's forgiveness fully here and there's a place to go later. This was some of what Isaiah said. Isaiah chapter 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we were healed. And that's verse 5. Verse 6, all of us were straying like sheep. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So he bore our iniquity there on the cross. In verse 8, it says, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He was cut off by our transgression. The transgression of the people caused him to lose his life. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. What does it say in chapter 2? He brings many sons to glory. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. He'll be the guilt offering, and then he'll see his offspring and have a long number of days. There's a prophecy, obviously, of the resurrection. And so here's Christ. Went to that holy place, became that offering for us. So it's the greater blood in the greater place. And then the last point, the one only death. Verse 25 transitions us to that. He did not offer himself often. Like the high priest, we think about the approximately 1,500 years that uh, tabernacle and temple Judaism existed. 
approximately 1,500 years. How many days of atonement were there? How many days were there like this day that the Hebrew writer uses as the great day of sacrifice? About 1,500 of them. Why'd they need 1,500 of them? If you need to do a thing 1,500 times, it's not working right. It's not working well. It's not really getting the job fully done, is it? What if you had to go to your doctor and he said, I'd like to schedule you a course of appointments over the next days, weeks, years, decades, and millennia to take care of this problem. Thank you for coming into your appointment. We have a treatment plan. There'll be 1,500 treatments to go. Um, maybe I can find me another doctor. It's really not, it's not solving the problem entirely. It just becomes, as chapter 10 will say, a reminder of sin year by year. He didn't need to do that. He only went the one time, verse 26, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. Now, remember, Christ is the priest eternally. Christ is the, Christ is the priest uh, perpetually like Melchizedek. Christ, if he had a continuing work, then it needed to get started a long time ago, and it needs to still be going. But it's not a continuing work. It's a one-time work, which it's got continuing effects, but it's a one-time work. He didn't need to suffer from the beginning to the end. He did it himself. But now once, now once, at the consummation of the ages, and that's why it's the consummation of the ages. It's the last great age. It's the time and reign of Christ, the full and final sacrifice. He has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so now, Everything has come together. It's come into being. Everything that all that Old Testament system was headed for has now arrived. It's the end of it. It's the consummation of it. And he has been manifest. He came and was shown and was known. And he sacrificed himself. This was the great promise that John made announcing uh, when he came. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or as John in his uh, epistle would summarize it, 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So those two facts work together. There's no sin in him, thus he doesn't need, like the high priest, to offer a sacrifice for himself and then for the sins of the people. He offers the one sacrifice of himself for others because he is qualified fully to do so. And so he has one life, he has one death, and then that's, that's the work. That's it. As verse 27 says, a famous statement, insomuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment. Well, we take that and apply it as a general truth, uh, that uh, we only live once, which is one of the most foundational facts that we nearly all agree to, at least in Western society, I realize there are uh, been some creeping Eastern philosophy of uh, reincarnation uh, come in in the last decades uh, into our society as we've forgotten our own values. We've imported everybody else's to give those a bit of a whirl. But uh, we pretty much have always recognized in Western society this one truth. You live once, you die once, and then there's judgment. And the people who deny any part of that uh, really often are end up with a great deal of issues and problems morality-wise uh, and theology-wise. If you don't believe in judgment, 
or if you don't believe in only one life, or if somehow you don't think you're going to die. Any get any of those wrong, you're going to have have issues. But uh, this is not just a general truth. This is a general truth that's brought up to talk about Christ in his life work and his coming back. As it says, it's appointed for men once to die, and after this the judgment, yes. So verse 28, so also Christ, and this is the point, not the general statement, which was pretty much incontrovertible, but the application now to Christ. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. All right, so Christ came, and he came to deal with sin, right? Everything about him. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world from the beginning of his ministry. He's a friend to sinners, was the critique of the people who didn't think they were sinners. I'm bearing the sins uh, of the world. Uh, it was Jesus's mission. And he came in reference to sin, to deal with sin. But now he's going to come back a second time without reference to sin. He's going to come back, it says, to those who eagerly await him, and it shall appear, as it says, appear a second time for salvation. So he came once to deal with sin, to get a people ready for salvation. Now he's going to return and bring that salvation. But with that salvation is going to come judgment. He's not coming to deal with any more sin. He's coming to save finally and fully the people who are with him and take them to heaven to be with him. It's to those who eagerly wait for him. So where he's sitting now at the right hand of God in heaven, he's going to bring those who eagerly wait for him. He's going to bring them there. He's going to give them that blessing. And so here is Christ. He's done his work in regard to sin. In regard to that work, he has come, he's done it, he's finished it, he sat down. There's nothing else to do. But for those who eagerly wait him and those who love him in this uh, way and for the way he's done and what he's helped us with uh, and saved us from, he will come and bring us to salvation. So as we close, just a little, uh, maybe a summary in contrast between that old covenant and the new. So under the old, there was a high priest. He was chosen because of his descent from Levi and his descent from Aaron. He was a person without physical defect. He was a person who went once a year into the holy place where he alone could go and he could not stay. When he did go there, he had to go there taking a sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice for the people. He would then leave again until next year's return or he would do it all over again. And he brought somebody else's blood, not his own. Compare that to Christ. He left heaven. He came, lived sinlessly, and he offered himself once for all time. Then he returned to heaven with that blood, the, the sign and symbol that he had died, that he had given his life for others, for their ransom, for their redemption. And so he returned to his former and now continual home where he now stays forever at the right hand of the Father 
And he's in the process through this grace that he's offered in this system to bring many sons to glory. He's made the way for them. He's invited them in. And as we see here, the way is of faith. As it says here in verse 28, for those that eagerly wait him, those who are trusting in him, those who are following in him, those who have made him their master, and they have become his disciple. So here is Christ, a full redemption, better than anything that went before. And before was pretty good and clear hand and glorious and given by God, but by greater blood at a greater place, by the one for all time death, he has made the way for us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.